Well, good morning, Wake Chapel. How are y'all doing this morning? Good, good. Choir, musicians, thank you. Feels good to be able to say that, doesn't it? Back in action. I love it. Well, it's uh, my privilege to be here this morning and to see uh, you guys worshiping the Lord. Uh, Our pastor, Isaac Mooneyham, is preaching uh, at this very moment at his home or his former church in, in Virginia. They're having a homecoming and they asked him to come speak. So he's preaching there. I'm preaching here. Isn't that wonderful? We've got two states covered. We're all over the place. <clears throat> so I just want to welcome everybody and um, uh, just uh, go over one announcement really quick. On your, on your worship folder, on your bulletin here, if you open it up, this inside tear out sheet, if you would like to uh, join us for a fellowship meal this Wednesday evening, you can tear this off. And uh, drop it in one of the offering plates on the side or in the back, or turn it into the church office later as well. Pretty good deal. Three dollars a plate. Can't beat that. And plus, you get to eat with your friends and have a good time. So we're going to be meeting in the fellowship hall this Wednesday night, 5:30 p.m. But today's the last day to turn this in, so we can get a head count. Uh, make sure we know how much chicken and dumplings—not chicken and pastry, but chicken and dumplings—to make. If you don't know the difference, come and find out. So, (laughs) well, I tell you what, I hope everybody's had a good weekend so far. Have you ever gone somewhere or uh, been to, uh, you know, like a place and you get back and you're just like telling people, oh, you got to try this place. You got to go to that place. Well, what if I was to tell you that there is a place so full of love that when you went there, you would definitely feel encouraged. What if I was to tell you that there was a place so full of compassion and sympathy that you just felt like you fit in? You felt like you had a purpose. You felt like, uh, like you were one of the group. Um, what if I tell, told you that was a, there was a place where everybody just seemed to be helping each other out everywhere you went? Would that be a place where you would be interested or intrigued into going and finding out? what it's like? Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go to, figuratively speaking, that place and kind of figure out what it takes to get to a place like that. Um, We're going to be learning about the goal or a goal of the church, our method for reaching that goal, our motivation for reaching that goal, and uh, we're going to be doing that through reading the book of Philippians. Uh, the goal, our goal is unity. The method is humility. The motivation is deity or Jesus Christ. And the glory is God the Father's. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go, there existed this missionary, and he went and he was stationed out into this town where, I mean, it was like a well-to-do town. I mean, they had risen to cultural dominance through economic fortune, through military might, through their supreme philosophical thought. I mean, this culture had just risen top-notch. So this missionary uh, 
goes to this town and he starts preaching the things of Jesus Christ, but they go against that culture's ideology. And they do not, they are so full of themselves and so full of pride and arrogance that they reject anything else besides what they are holding to be true. So when this guy starts preaching or, or, or trying to spread the, what the Bible says, they put him in jail. What do you think he does? Well, this missionary starts to write a letter. He writes a letter back to all those folks who are still the people that he was talking to in that territory. And he's trying to uh, warn them of something because he sees in the culture they are surrounded with such pride and arrogance that this group of people that he's been teaching the gospel to, that they might kind of incline towards that direction and they might neglect the gospel of humility and grace that he was preaching to them. Uh, has, has anybody guessed who this missionary was? Anybody know? The, <laughs> the missionary was Paul, the Apostle Paul. He was imprisoned in Rome, and he was writing to the church in Philippi. And that's where we pick off right here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And this is just a section of the letter that he wrote to this church that was surrounded in a territory full of pride and arrogance. I just got to warn you, or not warn you, but just share with you that this is one of my favorite pieces of Scripture. I love it. I I remember stumbling across it uh, some time ago um, in preparation for a mission trip. And uh, we, we talked about how we had to learn to serve humbly. And this is a section of Scripture that talks about the humility of Jesus Christ. It goes and shows us what lengths Christ went to and was willing to go through to convince us of his love for us and to uh, give us a, a model to live by. It reminds me of uh, Romans 4, no, Romans 2, 4, which is another one of my favorite verses, which says the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness. We're going to talk about that throughout the sermon. So the goal, in order to get to this place where I presented before, this wonderful place where everything seems to be just great, uh, the goal is unity. That is one of the characteristics uh, of the church. And we're going to read in Philippians 2, verse 1, What are some of the marks of a unified church? So if y'all are there with me, I'll read you, follow along. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation with the Spirit, in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and that's where we stop. Right there, you see Paul lays out the characteristics of a unified church. If you could underline them, you would see encouragement, comfort, cooperation or uh, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. So let's talk about these things. So encouragement. I want to talk about that word because I have recently redefined my definition of encouragement. I don't know how y'all would define that, but used to, I would think encouragement is making people feel good. You know, oh, that shirt looks great on you. Or, oh, way to go. You did great today. Making people feel good. But what word is in the middle of encouragement? Take out the, what was it? Courage. Encouragement is giving people courage. So it's not just making people feel good. 
It's uh, doing things like uh, helping people achieve their potential. You know, helping people to take risks, to trust in the love of their Father, to trust that the Holy Spirit empowers them throughout this process, to never give up, but to encourage people in their pursuit of walking with the Lord. So encouragement is not so much about making people feel good, but making people feel empowered, giving courage to. Next, we have another quality of a unified church, and that is comfort. Comfort comes from love. Love comes from God. God is love. And any love apart from God is not really love. It always has some selfish strings attached to it, doesn't it? Um, this love is conditional, but I, I, don't, I don't even think we can call it conditional love. Instead of conditional love, let's just call it what it really is, and that's uh, conditional generosity. It always expects something in return. Condi- conditional generosity in time will always backfire on you. You practice the art of genero- or conditional generosity, watch out because, bam, there's going to be outbursts, explosions of anger, jealousy, strife, resentment, resentment, infidelity. If you are practicing conditional generosity, don't call it love because when it, gets, when it doesn't get what it thinks it deserves, it's going to backfire on you. The mark of a unified church is comfort, and true comfort requires humility. Another mark of a unified church is cooperation. Uh, in Philippians 2.1, it says participation in the Spirit, people working together, cooperation under the leadership of the Spirit. And I was talking to one of our students this morning about this, and uh, something came to mind with me. One of the ways I like to think about walking in the Spirit is consider a marching band. Have y'all ever, do y'all see any football this weekend? See some marching band in action? Well, picture that. You've got, you've got percussion. You've got brass. You've got woodwinds. I, I, don't, I don't really know the different categories. I was talking to Dave, but he told me I forgot. I forgot all the different categories. But you've got all these different instruments, and, and they're all doing things. You've got the color guard. They're all doing different things but they're all working towards the same purpose. And they all have to stay in rhythm with the, with the beat, with the music. They have to count. They have to stay in rhythm. And they have to look at the uh, drum major. Is that what it was? Drum major? Yeah. Uh, McKenna was telling me about that this morning. Um, they have to stay in line with the guy who's doing the, you know, keeping everybody in check. So as long as the band, who are all doing different things, by the way, as long as they are staying in step with the lead and with the purpose of what they're doing as long as they stay focused man you have a beautiful halftime show you got a beautiful uh impressive orchestration there but if everybody wants to go their own way and they take their eyes off the focus what do you have you've got a (laughs) crumbling dominoes field full of tubas and all this stuff just all over the place it looks horrible it looks like cacophony not a symphony it looks like chaos not order. 
So this is what we have when we walk out of step with the Spirit. But when we are cooperating and walking in step with the Spirit, we have beauty. We have unity. Hmm. A church looks like this when, instead of walking by the Spirit, they seek their own selfish desires. What's the result? People getting in each other's way. People running into each other. People bumping into each other, maybe some friction. Maybe they're competing with each other's differences rather than complementing each other's differences. This is not attractive. The domestic behavior of the church will either attract people to Christ or it will repulse them. Cooperation requires humility. And here's the big idea. Our humility declares the lordship of Christ. Another unifying mark of a church, or a mark of a unified church, is affection. Uh, I, think to, I like to think of affection as letting someone know that you value them. Now this comes in many different forms. High fives, hugs, saying their name, welcoming them, sending them a letter, a text, many different ways, but a church should be affectionate towards one another. And also sympathy is another quality of a unified church. Okay, everyone, let's take a break really quick. And everybody raise their right hand with me really quick. Come on, get them up. Everybody raise their right hand. All right, now how many of you have ever had a bad day before? Okay, that's everybody. You can put your hand down. All of us have had a bad day. And I am thankful for those people in my life who have recognized When I was having a bad day, um, you can talk to my wife about this, but other people as well, besides Leslie, have recognized I've had a bad day and that I was struggling, and they did something about it. Maybe it was an encouraging word. Maybe maybe they decided to take me out to lunch and you know spoil me, or you know with some Wendy's or whatever. You know, encouragement, sympathy. Uh, This is a good thing. Now, this is a mark of a unified church, but this is also resembles somebody. Who do we resemble when we show sympathy? Jesus Christ. Can I share some verses with you guys? Mark, excuse me, Matthew 9, 36 said, When he saw the crowd, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14, he had compassion on them and did something about it. He healed their sick. Luke 7, 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5, listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Sympathy of Christ. So what is Paul saying here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1? Is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes, Is there any comfort in love? Of course. These are rhetorical questions. What Paul here is saying is, if you want these things, and I know you do, 
Here's how to get them. So how do we get them? Let's continue reading. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 2. Our method. Here's where Paul tells us our method to achieving a place and a destination of such unity. The method is humility. Chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's, that's my, one of my favorites. But it gets even better as we keep reading. But I love that verse. Humility means being like-minded. That's when we're defining humility here. He, he sets out the, the, the definition of it. It means being like-minded. Not meaning all of us think exactly the same. We're not talking about conformity here, but we're talking about unity here. Remember my example of the marching band? Each instrument plays different notes. Uh, they're different instruments. This is a beautiful picture. It's not ugly if you, if, you have, if you don't have a marching band with just trumpets. We need to have a diversity uh, here as well. So uh, the key here is that even though we have differences, we do have the same goal. We are all fixed on a unified purpose, which is to glorify God. We may uh, differ on ways in which we may get there, or, uh, but you know, as long as the ends don't, uh, excuse me, as long as the means don't, negate or contradict uh, the, the ends, then we allow flexibility in those areas. Unity can exist in a church that disagrees. Unity can exist in a church that disagrees. I hope so, or else there would never be a unified church because every church has disagreements. Um, Unity exists when we agree on the essentials and allow room to differ on the non-essentials. I'm not saying that we should avoid all controversial conversations or just avoid having talks on things we disagree about. In fact, that would be the mark of an unhealthy church because that would divide us and split us into people, groups who only think like we think. That is not a unifying picture. So yes, have conversations. But listen to this. A modest realization of our own personal imperfection must be forefront in order for any like-mindedness to exist. We have to have that humble attitude and posture. Unity exists as we enter discourse, not as though we're threatened, not as though other people's opinions are an attack against us, but through integrity, through respect, and through composure. Uh, Another thing in Philippians 2 verse 2 says here is that humility looks like unselfish ambition. I don't know about you, but most mornings when I'm waking up, I'm laying in my bed, most mornings I'm not thinking about other people's needs. (laughs) Most mornings I'm thinking, oh man, I wonder... What, I, what do I have to get done today? How will my day go as smoothly as possible if everything happens you know, to make my day go smooth? 
That is a selfish ambition of mine. That is selfish goal setting of mine. I want you to imagine if the very first things you think of before your foot hits the carpet or floor right outside your bed is, how can I assist someone today? How can I help another person achieve their goals today? Unselfish ambition is a mark of a unified church. This reminds me very much of Jesus. Doesn't it? Unselfish ambition who was not as concerned with his own needs as he was the needs of others, our humility declares the lordship of Christ. Humility is also arrogance abandoned. If humility leads to unity, then what leads to disunity? It would be arrogance, right? Pride, ego, snobbery, mockery. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall james 4 6 says god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble proverbs 16 5 even more fierce language here says everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the lord arrogance is not submitting to lord to the lord's leadership it's it's insisting upon its own way Our humility declares the lordship of Christ. Look with me right here at um, Philippians 2, verse 2. Complete my joy. I just have to talk about this word complete really quick. What, why is he saying complete? Because it's incomplete at the moment. Um, complete, uh, incomplete refers to that which has not yet been made whole. Paul recognizes the great potential that the church has. As members of the family of God, made in the image of God as we all are, we have the potential of such wonderful unity. Remember, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in fellowship, unified, doctrine of the Trinity. This is God. We are made in God's image. This is our potential. Paul sees this. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He sees our potential. But let's go back to my favorite class in high school, physics. Everybody love physics, right? Yeah, we got one. All right. I heard of one amen and a bunch of groans. All right. Don't worry. It's easy. Okay. Imagine a ball on the ground. I was going to bring one, but I thought y'all might get scared if I brought a ball in the... What's he going to do with that? No. Just imagine a ball. A ball is full of potential energy. But what does good old Sir Isaac Newton say? He says, A body at rest will remain at rest until acted upon by an outside source. So that ball, though it's full of potential energy, will not move. It will not go anywhere unless I pick it up and throw it. At that point, it becomes actual energy. It's in motion. It's moving. But before, it was just full of potential energy. Do you get where I'm going with this? Paul says, complete my joy because we have a lot of potential, but we have not been put yet into actual energy. So where does this actual energy come from? What is going to pick us up and throw us or get us moving? Well, that would be God. God, the unmoved mover, the initial cause of all things, is the source of our actual energy. So as I'm talking about 
the goal of the, or a goal of the church is unity, I'm not really saying, giving you a, you know, a, a pep rally talk saying, all right, get in there and get in the game and love each other as hard as you can. I'm saying depend on God to use you. Allow yourself to be used by God. Put yourself in a posture where you're ready, where you're ready to be moved by God and where you're not fixed and unmovable. What does this take? This takes humility, of course, doesn't it? Humility. All right. I love it. Don't y'all love physics? Now you love physics, right? It makes sense. Anyway, so this is what we're doing. We're going from unity through humility by deity for God's glory. Our humility declares the lordship of Christ. Now it gets even better. The letter is more, well, I should be careful with that word, but the letter gets even more exciting to me. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, he continues writing to these Christians surrounded by, surrounded by pride, and he gives us our motivation, one that I hope matches with what I was talking about before, Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God leads to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is, if I'm going this way, I'm just really making sure the cameraman's paying attention. <laughs> if I'm going this way, I turn around and go the other way. That's repentance. It's changing 180, turning from one set of behaviors to the next set of behaviors. It's, or not to the next, but the opposite. So the kindness of God is supposed to lead us from arrogance to humility. And here's our motivation. Jesus, y'all read with me in your Bibles. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Which is yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of of death. Okay, so we just got to talk really quick about this word emptied. This is not in any way leading us to a conclusion that Jesus became any less God at this point. This is not him leaving his godness. He has always and always will remain fully God. And, uh, but at this point, he became fully man. Rather, what Jesus was doing was he was laying aside his title and his honor rightfully due him to fulfill God's purpose in sending his son to take away the sins of the world. Jesus accepted that he needed to be a servant. Jesus volunteered to be this sacrifice. Though, he, though we deserved God's wrath, he bore it for us. Emptying himself does not make Jesus any less God. In fact, it makes, him, uh, it makes us believe even more so that he fully is God. Jesus, the creator of the world, maximum goodness in every quality and direction that you could imagine, God himself took on the form of a servant. Are you getting that? God himself. My hand can't reach up how high I want to just tell you. God himself taking on the form of a servant. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the Roman crucifix, 
a cross that was built and created to humiliate people, to torture them, to, and, uh, to really just bring them down to the lowest of lows, the, one of the worst ways to die ever. We have the highest of highs becoming the lowest of lows for us. You cannot paint a better picture of humility than that. This is our motivation. This is our Lord, Jesus Christ. Hmm. Goodness. He disregarded what he deserved. Jesus came to the earth to serve, suffer, and die for our sake. He humbly accepted the call to go on the greatest rescue mission ever. He looked on us with compassion as his beloved children. Remember that compassion? Sheep without a shepherd. He looked as a, us as children who couldn't save themselves, but he had to rescue them. He had to come save them. God has been going at this rescue mission since the very first sin happened. Through the Old Testament miracles, the prophets, through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and now through the power of his Holy Spirit by communicating his gospel to you where you sit or where you're watching, God is continually offering this gift of salvation to us. God has been telling us that we are incomplete, full of potential energy, incomplete without Him, but we need something to move us and to bring us back by restoration and reconciliation, our relationship with God. Salvation comes from Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works done in us by righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John 14.6, y'all know this one. And Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God clearly presents a presentation, an offer, an invitation to salvation. And looking for satisfaction in, or completion, you know, fulfilling our potential, anywhere else besides Jesus will only lead us to regret disappointment we can make decisions all throughout our life you have lots of decisions in front of us this is the most important decision you will ever make you can decide today to call jesus lord and savior of your life you can admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior and he will forgive you of your sins yes he is that humble no matter where you're coming from no matter what history you have and he's looking for humble people to follow in his footsteps that's what he's calling us to our lord is less concerned with your resume of impressive good deeds that you have done for him than he than he is about the condition of your heart that you bring before him are you bringing a humble heart before the god or are you kind of like all right god here's Here's my resume. Well, where's a sheet of paper? Like, okay, I don't know what this is, but here's my resume. 
I have no idea what this is. <laughs> Here's my resume, God. I've done a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, am, am I good? Can I pass? God doesn't care. He wants to see a humble heart. He wants to see somebody who recognizes, I, I can't, I can't, I can't do it on my own. I need you. Would you please help me? That's what it comes. That, that's what it takes uh, to enter the kingdom of God. We must come like a child. F- Psalm 51.7 tells us that a broken, ha- broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Come to God with your brokenness. Come to God with your regret, with your shame, with your, with your past history of flaws. And he will not despise you. He will not cast you out. He will welcome you with arms open wide. Is this your posture before God? Does humility represent your posture before God, the way in which you approach Him? Or is it arrogance? And to those of us who have already accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, then today is a good day for a spiritual checkup, is it not? Um, because He's calling each of us to a humble lifestyle, there's a lot, lots of things that gravitate and pull us towards arrogance, um, uh, competition, bitterness, envy, pride, uh, all these things, comparison, or uh, getting our feelings hurt, all these kind of things pull at us towards arrogance because we're so self-defensive a lot of times. God is calling us to uh, turn from that, to repent from that, and come humbly. So, we cannot do this, but we, can, uh, we cannot become Jesus in that fact. We cannot, there is only one Jesus, but we are called to look like him, and we are called to follow in his footsteps. And in doing so, our humility will declare the lordship of Christ. It shows the world who we follow and what he's like. The purpose, excuse me, the pursuit of humility means this. Adopting Christ's mindset, which is humility, compassion, sympathy, these types of things, and adopting Christ's example. Think about what Christ did. He served. He obeyed his Father. He suffered. Um, He laid his status and his title at the wayside, and he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, of a man. If you need a leader who leads by example, look no further than Christ. If you want a king worth serving, Jesus is that king. If you want someone to prove to you that they really do have true compassion for you, not just, gener- not just uh, conditional generosity. If you want somebody to prove that they really love you, look no further than the cross. There's no better explanation or... or uh, what's the word? Uh, Mm. What do you call that thing in a court? Evidence. There's no better evidence for, <laughs> sorry, for God's love than that. Loves us so much. Let's finish up here. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And this is a therefore. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
The glory is God the Father's. And here we see the unifier being exalted. Look at that. In giving man and giving mankind the capacity for humility. This is what God has done. This is our potential, the capacity for humility. God has paved a way for unity. This is our method for reaching unity. And he has also provided a lens by which we can see his son's glory. Do you see all that happening there in Philippians chapter 2? Not only in... In giving us the capacity for humility, God has brought us together. That's what unifies us. But also, he helps us see Jesus in a whole new light, which is more attractive than anything else this world presents to us. Here we see God the Father's response to the work of his son Jesus. Jesus' name, his title, is exalted by God the Father, praised, confessed in speech, Every knee will confess that Jesus is Lord. Honored in response. What do we sing? Bow the knee. Every knee will bow before Jesus. What does this mean? One day, every human being who has ever lived will recognize that Jesus is the Lord. Romans 14, 11 through 12 says, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an ex- account of himself to God. Jesus is the Messiah, the one that God's people have been waiting for from the Old Testament and that was prophesied about. Jesus is he. Isaiah 45, 22 through 23 says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. To me every knee shall bow. That's talking about our posture. And every tongue confess. That talks about our actions. It is, isn't it remarkable how this section ends? Look at verse 11 there. To the glory of God the Father. Here we have this picture of Jesus, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, his name being exalted by the Father. Such praise going to Jesus Christ, the Son. And look how it ends. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus, our motivation and our best visual representation of humility, doesn't stop being humble. Isn't that just amazing? When he's, figuratively speaking, up on stage and everybody's applauding him, he's redirecting it to God the Father. Jesus can't not be humble. It's who he is. It's not so much what he does, but it's just who he is. And this is the Lord and Savior whom we follow. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says, When all things are subjected to Him, the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. There is no end to Jesus' humility. Uh, The goal is unity. The method is humility. Our motivation is geotic. Deity or Jesus, and the glory is God the Father's. Maybe you can see how this works as a cycle. You all like visual aids? I didn't do a slideshow today, but imagine this. Um, God's glory initiates our humility. 
right? You see God's glory, his magnificence, magnificent. <laughs> you see how great God is, and you realize, oh, what am I? What am I? So God's glory ignites our humility, and our humility leads to unity, and our unity declares Jesus' glory, and the cycle continues. Y'all see that? We may look like a, a bunch of different shaped pieces of a puzzle. We each have our differences. And sometimes we think just by ourselves we're not that attractive or maybe we don't fit in. But through humility, God starts putting us together. And the church no longer looks like a, a scattered table full of various puzzle pieces, but a beautiful picture that represents His glory. This is that place where we can go. This is the visual aid that we can give the outside world to help them see the God we love and the Savior we follow after. Hmm. When others see us together, they should see Jesus. Our, our humility declares the lordship of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, Lord, encourage us today to boldly approach one another humbly. Help us to lay down our guard, lay aside our pride, and love each other as you love us. Humble us to accept the fact that we can do nothing to earn your love. And Lord, help us to praise you in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To the glory of the Father, amen.